turn back to John 19, 19, where Ron read to us a minute ago. Palm Sunday, the Sunday before Easter, kind of puts a, a bookend on each end. We have Palm Sunday this Sunday, then we have Resurrection Day, Easter Sunday, a week from now. And of course, in that last week of Jesus' life, there was all what we call the Passion Week, uh, when he uh, gave many lectures in Jerusalem, when he cleansed the temple, when he confronted uh, the Pharisees, Sadducees, Herodians, and so forth. But then, of course, his whole episode of the upper room uh, being arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane, uh, all of his trial, and then the crucifixion, and then the death and the burial. Uh, and all of that happens within this week. There's always so much to talk about. Uh, but as we come down to the text that I've chosen today, uh, it might seem amazing in all of that, that I'm going to talk about three words. <laughs> and uh, those three words are in verse 20, that the ascription over him was written in Hebrew and Greek and Latin. We find here that Pilate declares him to be called uh, Jesus, the King of the Jews, and puts that on a sign above the cross. When I was reading through this uh, not long ago in Bible reading, I, I came to that again and, and remembered that Pilate then decides to do this in three different translations, one for the Hebrew-speaking people, one for the Greek-speaking people, and one for the Romans or the Latin-speaking people. Go back with me to verse 30 of chapter 18 and verse 33, and let me uh, rehearse again the words of Pilate with Jesus and why he came to this conclusion. Verse 33 says, Then Pilate entered into the judgment hall again and called Jesus and said unto him, Art thou the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered him, Sayest thou this of thyself, or did others tell it thee of me? And Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Thine own nation and the chief priests have delivered thee unto me. What hast thou done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then would my servants fight, that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now is my kingdom not from hence. Pilate therefore said unto him, Art thou a king then? Jesus answered, Thou sayest that I am a king. To this end was I born, and for this cause came I into the world, that I should bear witness unto the truth. Every one that is of the truth heareth my voice. Pilate saith unto him, What is truth? And when he had said this, he went out again unto the Jews, and saith unto them, I find no fault at all. That you have a custom that I should release unto you one of the Passover. Will you therefore that I release unto you the king of the Jews? Then cried they all again, saying, Not this man, but Barabbas. Now, Barabbas was a robber. And so Pilate had had this conversation uh, with Jesus, asking, Are you a king? Are you this one that everyone is saying that you are? He hadn't been in on those conversations. He didn't go to those uh, meetings or to the baptisms or anything like that. He's just a Roman procurator. He's there to do his business, and then he leaves. And so he's asking this question. Well, it's interesting that that is the message that he concluded. This is your king, the king of the Jews. 
That's who I'm crucifying. They said, don't say that. Say that he said I was the king of the Jews, but not that he was. Pilate said, what I've written, I've written. And then he puts it in the vehicle that people can understand. He writes it three different times, three lines. One in their ancient language of Hebrew, another one in their common language now of Greek, and then in one for himself and other Romans in Latin. So that anyone who happens to be there uh, could uh, understand it. Remember that this was the Passover, a very cosmopolitan time. I mean, there were, we remember uh, when a uh, eunuch from Ethiopia came to this uh, time of the year. Everyone came from all over the world to these kinds of feasts. And so he's writing it so that everyone can see uh, what he has written and what conclusion he's come to. Now, was Jesus the king of the Jews? He is. <laughs> of course, and he was, and he will be, even though now in this age of grace, as we call it, uh, he's in exile. There was his death, his burial, his resurrection, his ascension back to the right hand of the Father until that time of exile is, is complete, and then the restitution of all things will happen, and he returns to this earth to reign as their king on David's throne. He is their, their king whether they've recognized it or not. And because he will be their king, he's our king. He's the Gentiles' king. He will be our king too. We will be in that kingdom and we will uh, praise him and we've accepted him as a savior king to us. And yet the vehicle for the Jew and for the Gentile is the gospel. It is the message that this one who is your king has died for you and has gone away and will come again and reckon all things to himself, you have to understand that. You have to be reconciled to him. Now, Pilate had in mind when he put this sign on the cross that everyone needs to understand this. And I'm not saying that Pilate understood personal salvation at all, of course. I don't think he was saved. Uh, but he's searching for truth here. He's wanting to know who Jesus really is. And he comes to a conclusion uh, as far as I can tell, he is who he said he was, and that's who you're going to king uh, to uh, put to death. And, and, and yet to him, it's just a matter of putting another king to death. It's just a matter of conquering somebody else and killing him off, and then you go on to the next thing. That's the way the Romans, the Romans were. And so here we have a message to Jews, to Greeks, to Romans. In those days, they kind of made up the world, at least the part of the world that mattered. I mean, they, they knew there was an Orient. They knew that there were other people in the world. But as far as the known world, as far as anyone uh, that mattered to them, they would either be Jews or they would be Greek-speaking peoples or they would be Romans, Latin-speaking people. So the gospel is not limited to them. The gospel goes to all time. It's to us also. The, the gospel is universal, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Jesus died as a ransom for all, whosoever will may come. Uh, and so we know it wasn't just for Jews, Greeks, and Romans, but for all of us. But somehow Pilate kind of had this in his mind that uh, uh, this is the king and you should all know it. This is the one they're crucifying in whatever language you live in. This, you should know this. And so here's this great truth displayed on Palm Sunday, uh, 
going into, not on Palm Sunday, but excuse me, on, on crucifixion day before uh, Easter, and it brings attention to the resurrection. So in your uh, bulletin, you have three simple thoughts coming from these three words. And I want to, if I can, because uh, I think this is maybe a unique way of looking at it. Actually, I think Pilate here unknowingly outlines the whole New Testament, especially the book of Acts. And he does it in these three words. And he presents to the world a savior for the Jews and for the Greeks and for the Romans and for the Americans and for the Russians and for everyone else in the world that will ever speak uh, a language in this world. He does that for them. And that's why I've called it, he's the savior of the Jews. He's the savior of the Greeks. He's the savior of the Romans. Let me remind you of these things. First of all, uh, he's the savior of the Jews. And I have three things if you're writing. Number one, by covenant. He is the savior of the Jews because God made a covenant with them, with their fathers. So let me remind you, Genesis 12. Now the Lord said unto Abram, Get thee out of thy country and from thy kindred and from thy father's house unto a land that I will show thee, and I will make of thee a great nation. I will bless thee and make thy name great, and thou shalt be a blessing. And I will bless them that bless thee and curse him that curseth thee. And in thee shall all families of the earth be blessed. That's the Abrahamic covenant. In 2 Samuel 7, 16, in the Davidic covenant, he says to David, Thine house and thy kingdom shall be established forever before thee. Thy throne shall be established forever. And so he is the, the uh, Messiah, the Savior of the Jews by covenant. Abrahamic and Davidic covenant that he made with them. Secondly, he is their savior by rejection. Interestingly, that these people who's, who had the prophecies that their Messiah was coming, that he would come and he would rescue them, they reject him and they crucify him. And yet, by that crucifixion, he becomes their savior too. He becomes the one that can forgive their sins as well. Let me remind you in the book of Acts and in the New Testament what striking words we have. In Acts 3.14, Peter's preaching and says, you, he says to the Jews, you denied the Holy One and the just and desired a murderer to be granted unto you, and you killed the Prince of Life whom God hath raised from the dead, whereof we are all witnesses. You did it. You killed him. In Acts 7, here is uh, uh, Stephen before his, uh, his death, says, You stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, you do always resist the Holy Ghost. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets have not your fathers persecuted? And they have slain them, which showed before the coming of the just one, of whom you have now been the betrayers and murderers. And then Paul, in 1 Thessalonians 2.14, in writing to that church, which was under persecution, he says to that church, You, brethren, became followers of the churches of God which are in Judea, which are in Christ Jesus. For you also have suffered like things of your own countrymen, even as they have of the Jews. And then he says, 
who both killed the Lord Jesus and their prophets and have persecuted us, they please not God, are contrary to all men, forbidding us to speak to the Gentiles that they might be saved, to fill up their sins always, for the wrath of God has come upon them to the uttermost. What striking words from the writers of the New Testament that these Jewish people crucified their king and their Messiah. And Pilate recognizes this and writes it in their language and puts it on top of the cross. Let me say before I leave that thought about their rejection that what I said was he then becomes their savior. And even though he's still going to reign as their king, as, as all the prophecies tell us, and so, by the way, the church of the New Testament did not replace Israel of the Old Testament. God will yet uh, bring Israel into favor. But Paul says in Romans 11, 1 and 2, I say then, hath God cast away his people? And he says in the Old English, God forbid. For I am also an Israelite of the seed of Abraham of the tribe of Benjamin. God hath not cast away his people which he foreknew. And in verse 11, I say then, have you stumbled, have they stumbled that they should fall? God forbid. But rather, through their fall is salvation come unto the Gentiles to provoke them to jealousy. And verse 15, if the casting away of them be the reconciling of the world, what shall the receiving of them be but life from the dead? When the resurrection takes place and they are in their land in Jerusalem and Jesus reigns over them as king, what a great, we will all say amen and hallelujah, that salvation was brought to us and to them because of their rejection and crucifixion of the Messiah. So in God's wonderful plan, he knew this. By the way, when A.D. 70 came and the Romans came in and destroyed that city, that was their punishment for that generation and upon them for rejecting that Messiah. And God punished them for it. But he's the Savior of the Jews by covenant, by rejection, but also by promise. Because he still has promised to be their king. He still has promised to be their Savior. Let me read to you from Deuteronomy 30, the Palestinian covenant. Deuteronomy 35, uh, verse 3, that then the Lord thy God will turn thy captivity and have compassion upon thee and will return and gather thee from all the nations whither the Lord thy God hath scattered thee and the Lord thy God will bring thee into the land which thy fathers possessed and thou shalt possess it and he will do thee good and multiply thee above thy fathers. That will yet come. That's not been fulfilled yet. In Isaiah 4, 3 and 4, Isaiah said it this way, It shall come to pass that he that is left in Zion and he that remaineth in Jerusalem shall be called holy, even every one that is written among the living in Jerusalem, when the Lord shall have washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and shall have purged the blood of Jerusalem from the midst thereof by the spirit of judgment and by the spirit of burning. And so the promise is still that he will restore them yet. Now that has not happened, and it won't happen until Jesus Christ returns a second time. But I have to say, isn't it amazing that after 2,000 years of their rejection, 2,000 years of them being cast away, that we now speak all the time of a nation called Israel in the land of Israel? 
and that from 1948 to now, there's a nation that the world has to deal with and the world has to reckon. Uh, it has become maybe the most, the most important piece of real estate on this globe. And why is that? Because God has a future for them and God will yet restore them when he comes the second time. It is not replacement theology, as the theologians say. It's not that they've been replaced by somebody else, and now they're not God's people anymore. Somebody else is, like the church or whatever. No, it has never ceased to be their promise. It is only paused for a while until the second coming. The promises are still in effect, and the time is still coming. So he's the Savior of the Jews. Secondly, he's the Savior of the Greeks. There were lots of Greeks and Greek-speaking people in those days. As a matter of fact, Greek was the lingua franca of the day. It was the common language of the day. That's why, though it wasn't written yet, the day Jesus died, uh, the New Testament will be written in what? In Greek. Not in the Hebrew of the Old Testament, not in Latin of the Romans, but in Greek in that common language that everyone spoke. As a matter of fact, for 200 years at this time, the Old Testament has been translated into Greek so that they could read it because they all spoke Greek. And so Greek becomes very important. Now, let me remind you a little bit of the Greeks then. First of all, he's the savior of the Greeks, number one, by prophecy. I have three thoughts here. Number one, by prophecy. Specifically, the prophecy of Daniel. Because you'll remember that Daniel prophesied of the Greek nation that was coming. So in Daniel 2, 31 through 33, Daniel, we, we have this description of something that Nebuchadnezzar saw. He saw this great colossus, this, this statue, this giant man. And he begins to describe from the head down to the feet. And he says, Thou king sawest and behold a great image. This great image whose brightness was excellent stood before thee and the form thereof was terrible. The image's head was of fine gold, his breast and his arms of silver, his belly and thighs of brass, and his legs of iron, his feet part of iron, part of clay. Now, if you know the book of Daniel, which I think you probably do, you realize that he's describing four kingdoms, the Babylonian kingdom, the head of gold, and the Persian kingdom, the, the shoulders of, of brass. But then he describes the Greeks, is the belly of silver, and then the Roman Empire is the legs of iron. This is years before any of them were established. And here is Daniel giving the prophecy that these Greeks would, this nation would come, and they would dwell even in the time of the uh, crucifixion. In Daniel 7, he sees the four beasts, remember? And he says, I behold, lo, another like a leopard. That's a reference to the Greek empire and to Alexander, by the way, which upon the back had four wings of a fowl. The beast also had four heads and dominion was given unto it. Here's Daniel describing how Nebuchadnezzar divided his kingdom among his four generals. All of this given hundreds of years before it happened. And so he is the savior of these Greeks by prophecy, but secondly, by history. Alexander in the third century BC, took over the world. And he, 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 by the time he was 30 years old, uh, he had conquered everything that there was to conquer, and he Hellenized the world. That's the reference to their history. He, 
they became Hellenized people. They spoke Greek. They thought Greek. They read in Greek. They studied the Greek uh, uh, history and, and all of that. There was a man named Antiochus, Epiphanes, a Greek who came into Jerusalem and captured it and, and uh, desecrated the temple. And the Jews had to rise up in that day, the Maccabees themselves, and had to throw them out of the temple. And they celebrated that by a feast called Hanukkah. And Hanukkah in 165 B.C. was celebrated because of the Greeks' intrusion into their temple. And then we have the New Testament self in Greek. You know, there's a true episode that happened that when Alexander was conquering the world, and he had taken over the Persian Empire, and he had captured uh, uh, Nineveh and those nations to the north of Israel, that he was on his way down to Jerusalem with his armies. Here comes the ruler of the world, the greatest general in the world, and he's coming down toward Jerusalem, and the high priest from Jerusalem goes out to meet him, and he carries with him a copy of the book of Daniel, and he stops the king. And the king has to listen to this little Jewish priest. And the priest opens the book of Daniel and says, look, our scriptures talk about you. And he stops and he's amazed. And he sees in the prophecies of the Jews that here's a prophecy of himself, of, of Alexander the Great. And he turns and goes away and doesn't sack Jerusalem. Because God had a plan for them and for these Greeks. And so... He is the Savior of the Greeks by prophecy and history, but also by the, by the gospel. And that is, when the gospel goes out by the apostles, it's going to go to the Greeks. I'm going to come back to this in a minute. But you remember Paul going to Macedonia? Come over into Macedonia and help us. Philip of Macedon was Alexander's father. Macedonia is a Greek-speaking continent. It's a Greek-speaking peninsula. Achaia is at the bottom, where Athens and Corinth and all of these places are Greek, and the gospel's going to the Greeks, uh, to these cities, even in Ephesus that had the temple to Diana and others. And so he's the savior of the Greeks, and here is Pilate, without realizing it, uh, putting the message in their language so that they understand this one is dying for you. I want to take a chance here, which I've already taken this morning, of reading you uh, something that you'll have to listen to. Let me read this paragraph with you because it comes from Charles Spurgeon. Now, Spurgeon lived in the 1800s, the second half of the 1800s, and he pastored in London, England, a very cosmopolitan uh, city also. And in 1859, the great Metropolitan Tabernacle was built, and it was being dedicated. And as this great structure, which I've stood in myself and looked at myself, uh, on August 16, 1859, is being dedicated by their pastor, Charles Spurgeon, and he's giving this sermon, which you can still read in many different places if you'd like. But allow me to read this to you and put yourself in this place, how this man gives credit to the Greeks for what he's doing. He says, now, my dear friends, as to the place to be erected here, I have a word or two to say with regard to its style, with regard to its purposes, and with regard to our faith and our promise. It is to me a matter of congratulation that we shall succeed in building in this city a Grecian place of worship. Now, I'm going to stop and say, 
well, he goes on and says, my notions of architecture are not worth much because I look at architecture from a theological point of view, not from an architectural one. Because even today, when you look at the Metropolitan Tabernacle, it doesn't look like the rest of London. It doesn't look like much else because it's built in a Greek architectural style. And it was when he built it. And he did that for a reason, even though it stood out in those days in that city. Then he goes on. It seems to me that there are two sacred languages in the world. There was the Hebrew of old. And I doubt that Solomon adopted Jewish architecture, a Hebrew form and fashion of putting stones together in harmony with the Hebrew faith. But uh, there is but one other sacred language, and it's not Rome's mongrel tongue. Notice how he, spe he speaks of uh, the Jews and now of the Romans. But he says, there is only one other sacred language, the Greek, and that is dear to every Christian's heart. Our fullest revelation is in that tongue, our noblest name for Jesus. The very epitome and standard for our faith is Greek, and this place is Grecian. I care not that many an idol temple has been built after the same fashion. So it may have been that Abraham and the ancient Hebrews have carried their architecture from the Ur of the Chaldees. Greek is the sacred tongue, and Greek is the Baptist tongue. I, I like that. We may be beaten in our own versions sometimes, but never in the Greek. Every Baptist place should be Grecian, never Gothic. We owe nothing to the Goths as religionists. We owe our scriptures to the Greek language. And a Grecian place this shall be. God gave us the power and life of that master of the, or God give us the power and life of that master of the Grecian language, the Apostle Paul, that like uh, wonders may be done by the preaching of the word. Well, that may bore you to read something like that from a Spurgeon, but I thought here is a guy who mentions the Hebrews and the Romans and the Greeks and gives special credit to the fact that the gospel was spread around this world by the Greek language. And I go back to old unbelieving Roman Pilate who said, I'm going to have to translate this for the Greeks and I'm going to put it on the cross so that they can read it here forevermore. And he did it. This is Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Well, one more thing let me point out, and that is he's the savior of the Romans. And that's why it was written in Latin. And so very similar to the last three points, let me give you three thoughts under this. Number one, he's the savior of the Romans by, by prophecy, because out of that same prophecy of Daniel, you have a prophecy of the coming Romans, right? His legs were of iron, Daniel 2 says, his feet part of iron and clay. The, the fourth uh, part of that great colossus that he saw, the legs of iron, pictured Rome as an iron-clad empire. Uh, then, he says in Daniel 7, 7, after this I saw in the night visions the fourth beast. Behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrible, strong exceedingly, and it had great iron teeth, and it devoured and brake in pieces and stamped the residue with the feet of it. And it was diverse from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns." So here he's describing this Roman beast that's coming hundreds of years before the Roman Empire was ever established because it would be important in the time of Christ. It would be important when the king would come. Not only that, but we also have uh, in the book of Acts, uh, Paul, the apostle, very concerned about going. So, so uh, 
the history of it also extends to that. I'll come back to that uh, in just a minute. By history, remember that the Roman Empire was started by Augustus in 37 BC and went to 476 AD until the Visigoths sacked Rome. And so when Jesus died on the cross, the Roman Empire was in charge. It was in charge of the taxation. It was in charge of the governments. It was in charge of the trade. It was in charge of everything. And Jesus died in that Roman time at the hands of a Roman governor named Pilate and at the hands of a Roman-type crucifixion. Jesus knew that was coming. Pilate said, you know, am I a Jew? Am I even a Greek? I'm a Roman. And when I translate this out and put it for you Jews and all of you Greek-speaking people, I'm also going to write it for me and all of us Romans, and I'm going to write it in Latin. And he does, although no doubt he could speak Greek as well. So he did that, and the Roman Empire was notified by that. And let me point out thirdly then, not only by prophecy and by history, but thirdly by gospel. Because what we find in the book of Acts is the Apostle Paul was anxious to preach the gospel to the Romans. He realized that this language uh, that they speak needed the gospel as well. Let me point out three verses. Acts 19.21. After these things were ended, Paul purposed in the Spirit, when he had passed through Macedonia and Achaia, to go to Jerusalem, saying, After I have been there, I must also see Rome. And in Acts 23, 11, the night following the Lord stood by him and said, Be of good cheer, Paul, for as thou hast testified of me in Jerusalem, so must thou bear witness also in Rome. And Romans 1, 15, when he writes the letter to the church there, he says, So as much as in me is, I am ready to preach the gospel to you that are at Rome also. Paul was constantly saying, I want to go to Rome. I want to preach the gospel there. And the Romans held sway, uh, destroying Jerusalem in 70 A.D. As a matter of fact, the Antichrist, folks, that we talk about will be of the revived Roman Empire, a European-type empire. And, in case you didn't realize it, the word Easter is a Roman word. It appears only once in our Bible in Acts 12.4, and it's actually an English translation of the word Pascha or Passover, but they translated it Easter because in Herod's mind, that's what he would have been thinking. He would have been celebrating the Feast of Ishtar, the Queen of Heaven, not the Passover Lamb of the Old Testament. And so we even have the word Easter, and we still use the word Easter today from our Roman friends and from the Latin-speaking world. And so he's the Savior of the Jews, he's the Savior of the Greeks, he's the Savior of the Romans. Now, may I do a little exercise with you with your Bible? Because I think this is interesting, that in the book of Acts, you have an outline here of what happens in the book of Acts. To the Hebrews first, to the Greeks second, and to the Romans third. And I think it's interesting, as, as uh, Pilate was led uh, by, by the Spirit of God, probably, to put this on the cross, that he was actually outlining the three journeys of the Apostle Paul. Number one is the first missionary journey was to Galatia, where he preached to the Jews in their synagogues and was even stoned by the Jews. And so if you can, if you can go uh, to your right, just one book, and go with me to Acts 13. I, wa I want to just read a few verses as I pick them out throughout the book of Acts here. Acts 13 and verse 14. 
Paul is in uh, his first missionary journey, and it's in the area of Galatia. When they had departed from Perga, they came to Antioch and Pisidia and went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and sat down. Verse 15, and after reading of the law of the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue went unto them, saying, Ye men and brethren, if you have any word of exhortation for the people, say on. Peter stood up and beckoned with his hand and said, Men of Israel, ye that fear God, give audience. And he goes on, The God of this people of Israel chose our fathers and exalted the people. And he goes into a long dissertation about how the gospel is for you Jewish people. And he's preaching to these Jewish people in the area of Galatia. Now, verse 43 of that same chapter, of chapter 13, he says, Now when the congregation was broken up, many of the Jews and religious proselytes followed Paul and Barnabas, who, speaking to them, persuaded them to continue in the grace of God. And the next Sabbath day came the whole city together to hear the word of God. And of course, in verse 45, but when the Jews saw the multitude, they were filled with envy and they began to persecute Paul. In chapter 14 and verse 19, there came thither certain Jews from Antioch and Iconium who persuaded the people, having stoned Paul, they drew him out of the city, supposing he had been dead. And so in the first journey, of Paul's missionary journeys, he goes and preaches to the Hebrews, to the Jews. In 1 Peter chapter 1, uh, we learned that these were the sojourners. These were the pilgrims that had gone north out of Jerusalem and had to settle into this land of Galatia. Uh, and there they were to hear the gospel through Paul on his first missionary journey. He's the king of the Jews and all of you who live in Galatia. Secondly, he went on a second missionary journey, beginning in Acts 16. And when he goes on his second missionary journey, he's going to go to the Greeks. He's going to go to Asia and to Greece. And chapter 16, verse 3, he finds a young man named Timothy, and he has him circumcised, it says, because of the Jews which were in those quarters, for they knew all that his father was a Greek. The first indication that there's going to be Greeks here. And then in verse 9, you have the Macedonian vision. A vision appeared to Paul in the night, and there stood a man of Macedonia. That's a man of the area of Philip of Macedon, Alexander's home uh, place saying, come over into Macedonia and help us. And when we had seen the vision, immediately we went. And they went into that area of Macedon uh, where, of course, the gospel was preached to them. In, in 17, verse 4, here they are in Thessalonica, and some of them believed and consorted with Paul and Silas, and of the devout Greeks a great multitude, and even the chief women not a few. In verse 21 of that chapter, all the Athenians and strangers which were there spent their time with nothing else but to tell or hear some new thing. That's in Athens, where he's preaching to the Athenians on Mars Hill. And in chapter 18 and verse 4 at Corinth, he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and persuaded Jews and the Greeks. Now, I'm only pointing out to you that on his second missionary journey, the gospel is largely to the Greeks of Macedon and Achaia, Macedonia and Achaia, and even uh, as far as Ephesus. And then, let me proceed on a little farther. In the third missionary journey, 
he goes as far as Italy, his third and fourth journey, because the fourth one will be by boat all the way to Italy. And so in Acts 16.21, here are those in Philippi who are Romans and concerned that Paul is going to stir up the Roman government against them, saying, these men, being Jews, do exceedingly trouble our city and teach customs which is not lawful for us to receive, being Romans. And so now the gospel is going to the Romans. And in chapter 19, verse 40, let's skip way ahead here uh, uh, to say this. We are in danger to be called in question for this day's uproar. This is in Ephesus. Being no excuse whereof we may give account for this discourse. In other words, the Romans will come in and punish us if we let this man keep speaking. Now, I'm going to point out one more thing. That Paul then, beginning in Acts 18, has to suffer at the hands of three uh, uh, judges at three Bema seats. First, it's in Acts 18 in Corinth. He stands at Gallio's judgment seat in verse 12. Gallio was a, was a Roman, and he was in charge of this area, and so he had a Bema seat, a judgment seat. And Paul had to stand at this Roman judgment seat on his third missionary journey. And then in Acts, uh, uh, if we went all the way up to 23, 24, and 25, he's taken captive uh, and sent to Caesarea and has to appear before Herod's judgment seat. Herod then, the Herod living at that time, had a Bema seat in Caesarea. After all, he called the city Caesarea after Caesar, a Roman city. And there's a judgment seat there, and Paul has to stand before it. And then when Paul says... I appeal unto Caesar. They said, you've appealed unto Caesar? Then unto Caesar you'll go. And he went to uh, Nero's Bema seat in Rome. And so Paul, in his third missionary journey, had to stand before the Romans at three different Bema seats. And what we find, interestingly, in 2 Tim Timothy chapter 4, the last chapter that he wrote, he said, I'm not interested in any of those. There's another Bema seat that I'm going to appear before, and I'll do just fine before that, and that's the Bema seat of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. So the gospel went to the Romans on his third and fourth missionary journeys. I don't know that that's coincidence. I think that uh, the Holy Spirit ties these things together, and here is Pilate, unknowingly, no doubt, putting on the cross. Here is the king of the Jews and the king of all the rest of you also. And he writes it in Hebrew and he writes it in Greek and he writes it in Latin so that they know that outline. Now, Jesus died for the whole world, did he not? He died for everyone that was alive then and everyone that ever has been alive and he died for, your for the people of your language, too. He died for the people of English, uh, speak English, speak Chinese, speak Russian, speak Spanish, speak Arabic. Uh, he died for all people of all time. It could be written in any language. Here is the king of the Jews who died for you. And you should know that in your language. And I'm glad, by the way, that the Bible has been translated probably in every language of the world by now. If they find another language that it hasn't been translated in, they'll translate it into that language. And so that sign above the cross has been translated in every language of the world. So you understand and see he was the king of the Jews when he died, but he can be your king by new birth and by salvation. 
because whosoever will may come. And I hope that you do. Stand now with me, if you will. As we stand and we think about what Jesus did for us on the cross, let's bow our heads, let's go to him in prayer, and we'll sing a song of invitation in just a moment. Father, your word is precious to us, and every, every word of it inspired by your spirit. Father, this great event that happened 2,000 plus years ago when the Son of God, the Son of Man, the King of the Jews, and the King of every believer who has believed in him died on that cross for our sins. And whether old Pilate understood it or not, when he questioned Jesus, he surely wrote the truth there, and we're glad that he did. Father, we stand here this morning, as many believers will across this world, we stand here on the other side of the world in a different language, in a different time, and in a different culture. And yet we praise you that he was the king of the Jews who died for our sins. So we thank you for that. And now, Father, I pray that as we think about these things, first of all, if someone does not know Christ as Savior, here in this place or in any place today, as they hear the gospel of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, they might come to him as Savior. And Father, I pray also that we might be true to your word, diligent with the message of it, as we continue to take it around the world. We thank you, Father, that uh, Jesus Christ is our Savior and the Savior of every person in the world. Now, bless in this as we think about it, as you speak to our hearts, do in our hearts what you desire to do this morning. We'll thank you in Jesus' name. John's going to come.